Welcome to Pull Up A Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK. And in each episode, I'll be chatting to some of the world's most influential business leaders and thinkers on sustainable growth, what it means to them and why it matters. I'm delighted to be joined today by William Vereker, the chair of Santander UK and board member of LSEG and a board member of fast-growing tech unicorn, Salonis. William is one of the best known names in the city and has a first-class track record in banking with experience at JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Lehman Brothers and UBS. He also spent time at the top of government as former Prime Minister Theresa May's business envoy, a role in which he focused on strengthening the relationship between government and the city at a time of seismic change in the UK economy. William Vereker, please pull up a chair. William, thank you very much for joining us on Pull Up a Chair today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're going to cover private sector, government, banking, which is a very important sector for the UK, as well as technology, which is something that I'm quite particularly um, interested in. But can we just start with a very simple question? What does sustainable growth mean to you? Well, morning, Bia. Thanks very much indeed for having me. Uh, so sustainable growth uh, for, for us and, and me is all about our customers. It's all about helping our customers to achieve their goals. Uh, and we have a very wide range of customers in our business. We have individual households and we provide mortgages to them. We have small and medium-sized business customers across the UK and actually one of the largest car finance uh, businesses in the, in the UK. And so we're all about helping our customers achieve uh, their goals by providing financing to them. And of course, what we want to do when we think about sustainable growth is provide financing to our customers, which helps them to meet their targets to transition to a low carbon economy. Thank you, William, for that. Can I just sort of maybe take a step back? We talk about the challenges for business to meet the needs of people, planet and profit. I just would love to get your perspectives on that. So at the end of the day, all businesses will only thrive and succeed and be successful in 20 years time and of course have made profit in 20 years time if they are addressing the future needs of the planet. Uh, they will not be businesses in 20 years time. So it's an absolutely core part of every business to think about how they're going to achieve that. How are they going to be profitable and deliver value to shareholders? But how are they going to grow sustainably and meet the very significant challenge that we all know we have uh, around our planet. And of course, uh, in order to be able to uh, continue to do that, businesses have to innovate. It's all about innovation. If you do the same thing year after year, you fail. But if you innovate, you will succeed. And of course, in this area, this means as a bank, as Santander, innovation means developing financial products and financial solutions for customers which help them to make that transition to a low carbon economy. Now, what does that mean in practice? It means um, homes. The second biggest source of carbon emission in the UK is, um, is poorly insulated housing. And so retrofitting housing stock in the UK is one of the most simple ways to reduce uh, the UK's carbon footprint, whether that be glazing, whether that be insulation, whether that be changing the means of heating, whether it be solar panels. And so, of course, what we're doing is developing innovative financial products which allow people to borrow money to finance those changes to their homes. Cars, the transition to EVs, one of the core businesses we have is financing uh, auto vehicles. So we have financing products now for 
EVs and for all the consumers who want to buy their electric vehicles. And of course, the same thing for businesses in, in the loan to make to them. And, and that's what it's about. Innovation, continuous change, striving to deliver value for customers. And what I think is really lovely about that is how you empower your customers to make the decisions and choices that actually meet the common goals that we're all trying to align to. So you're an investment banker by background and you left the private sector to become business env envoy for the Prime Minister Theresa May to rebuild relationships with the city. So there's a lot of conversation around the role of government and business and how we can collaborate more. So I'd love to get your reflections on that. So it was a privilege actually for me to, to spend time in government. And actually, it was an education also. I think one becomes a much better business leader by having spent time in government. And of course, understand the pressures that governments are under and the frameworks in which they need to make decisions and indeed how Whitehall and the civil service and how policy actually gets made. And the pipe, actually, which policy uh, goes through is a very small pipe. So it's a very big Whitehall operation. But actually, getting policy developed agreed and turned into legislation is a, is a long, complex, complex process. And of course, business has a crucial role to play in the development of that policy because yeah, ultimately, government is, is there to serve the people and it's there to serve the economy. It's there to help grow the economy and businesses are the key engine of growth of, of that. And so the relationship between government and business is, is crucial. And I must say, this government, the, the very recent Rishi Sunak government, has taken some very significant steps, especially as it relates to financial services and the world I'm in, uh, to start to develop policy, which are going to make a big difference to competitiveness in the UK. Um, the package of reforms announced by the Chancellor at Edinburgh was actually the first really meaningful package of policy and reform focused on financial services and focused on the competitiveness of financial services that we've had since 2010. And so it's policy like that, which is so crucial and has been developed you know, in combination with, uh, with financial services industry, which of course have been talking to government and we talk extensively to government about that. So I'm actually very encouraged by the direction of the, the, the policy making in the government um, in the recent months. I just wanted to just probe a little bit further, if that's okay. You've talked about the package of policies and how government and business can really work and the engine that, you know, that business provides. In terms of government's role in sustainable growth, I mean, we're talking about sustainable as in long-term, decades. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? So it's, it's a great question because th there is in reality a very significant gap often in government between uh, aspiration and the policy that the government would like to have and the realities of actually implementing it and executing on it. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about this as, as, a, policy, as a policy gap. And uh, if you look at the transition to the low carbon economy, the UK has actually been one of the most forward leaning countries in the world in terms of the targets that we're setting, whether it be net zero targets, whether it be to phase out all combustion engines by 2030, um, the aspirations that government have around retrofitting homes to reduce emissions. The challenge, of course, is who pays for it and, and, and how is it executed? Because it is very, very expensive. And we in business, are doing everything we can to think through innovative solutions to meet these needs, whether it be the financing of electric vehicles, or in our case, financing for retrofitting of homes. But who's gonna pay for it? Who is gonna pay for the practical cost of a solar panel, new windows, uh, the new air source boiler, uh, in order to reduce the emissions in a home? Because it's expensive. And you know, in the cost of living crisis we have today, 
most households cannot afford it, even with the advantage of, of loans and so on from our organization or other banks who are looking at similar, at similar things. And so I would really encourage the government to take the next step, which is to go from target setting and general policy making to very specific implementation steps. And certainly the private sector is ready to play its role in that, but the hard conversation has got to be had around how all this is going to get paid for. Really interesting. I can see some real parallels in business as well, because there is a lot of aspiration across businesses in terms of what sustainable growth means for them, and it will be community, it will be you know, um, net zero, etc. Well, let, let me give you another example, actually. Um, EV charging. So when I was in government, we had extensive discussions around the need for a high-speed charging network in the UK, where no household would be more than 50 miles away from a high-speed charging point precisely to avoid what we have in um, the roaming and mobile network service where there are large black spots in this country uh, or indeed in fiber and access to high-speed internet because there was no central plan, it was left to the private sector. And we had extensive discussions about putting this in place which would be a public-private solution. Uh, a national grid actually had developed a very well thought through plan for a high-speed charging network and this would precisely have avoided the situation we saw over Christmas where all these cars were lined up around yeah. the block because there weren't enough charging points and people finding they had to wait three hours in order to be able to charge their car. Uh, but whilst there was a real policy intent, the practical steps to actually get this implemented, and I won't go into where it got blocked, but it did get blocked within government and it couldn't be implemented. And here we are now, three years later, and we really haven't made any progress on high-speed charging. Yeah, I, I get your point there. There's a lot of remedial action before we can even start to move forward. Um, I just wanted to pick up on your reflections of the UK economy. Um, as chair of Santander UK, you're part of a large, diversified international bank. But in terms of the UK and the growth prospects for the UK, I'd love to get your perspectives on that. So look, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's controversial to, to say it's been a very dispiriting few years in the, in the UK. And it, objectively, uh, the UK has grown uh, less quickly than it uh, may have done. It's certainly grown less quickly than uh, our peers in Europe and, and in the US. And uh, that has been a, a, a drag on investment and a drag on business confidence in the, in the UK. And if you look at the year ahead, the 2023, which has just started, again, uh, the economists are all telling us that the uh, UK will go into recession this year, we'll have negative GDP growth, minus 2%. Uh, Eurozone, more or less flat. And in the case of Santander, we operate in, in many markets around the world, Brazil, Mexico, North America, and there the GDP growth prospects are, are, are much stronger, positive. So uh, we certainly are continuing to face economic headwinds. Uh, but, and I do underscore that three times, I think there are real grounds for optimism in terms of the UK as a country. I think we have a much clearer outlook in terms of, of where we're going and a more predictable investment horizon and, and framework. Uh, we have lots of things going for us here in the UK, whether it be our education system, whether it be the quality and capability of the people we have in this country, uh, the innovation, uh, the, the very demonstrable track record we have, whether it's in biotech or life sciences or technology, and of course in, in financial services. And so whilst yeah, there obviously have been headwinds, uh, I'm certainly more optimistic going into 2023 about the outlook for the UK. And certainly as an international investor, when I talk to international investors, they look at the UK through the lenses of, is now the time really to start thinking about investing again in the UK? 
I think you know absolutely what I hear as well. You've you've hit the ingredients in terms of the, the the factors for the UK, the education, the innovation, the talent, the technology, the, the financial services. Absolutely. I just want to talk a little bit about the business's role in society. Um, and you, you know, you've you've been quoted as talking about your commitment to creating real opportunities transforming lives and delivering on economic prosperity and I think that, that all aligns with the uh, purpose that Santander talks about. Um, you've also done quite a lot in the local communities and I just wondered if you could share something, uh, share your recent uh, partnership but especially with MKU. I don't know if you'd be happy to share that. So, so you, we, we at Santander for many years have believed very strongly that we have a broader role to play in society and that has to be part of our purpose as a business. And of course that's good business for us in the end because we ultimately want to serve our customers which means we, we need customers, we want customers, we're trying to grow our customer base and therefore we need to be seen to be making a broader impact on society for our customers than in a narrow financial services sense. And so the area that we're really focused on is education and higher education. As an organisation globally we're the largest contributor and donator to higher education in the world. We've given 2.1 billion euros to higher education broadly defined over the last 20 years globally across our different markets. And here in the UK, we've given over 100 million pounds in the last 15 years to our university partners. Uh, we have 75 university partners across the UK and we support them in different, in different ways, but largely we're aimed at um, underprivileged students and students who otherwise might not have been able to go to university and providing funding for them through a scholarship program to help them to do that. Um, and then we go further because we have two further university programs we work very closely on. One is around helping these students to then find internships. And actually we've just announced a program in Milton Keynes, which is where our new headquarters is located and we'll open that in, in April. It's a, a big new facility by the train station. Uh, where we're going to be uh, providing a thousand paid-for internships for students in the Milton Keynes areas with medium and local businesses to help them have the skills and so on which they need to be successful in the workplace. And then finally we have an entrepreneurship program where we provide seed funding to 500 small businesses which are founded in universities and we, have, we fund 500 of those every year to help them incubate and get going and turn into viable businesses over, um, over, over time. Wow. Thank you. I'm going to pick up on entrepreneurship a little bit later, but you have given us some really great examples of living your purpose and, and you know, how purpose really is driving what you do in the, in the market and the communities. I just want to talk about, about culture. Um, with the scale and footprint of Santander, um, culture is a really interesting topic to, uh, for a global organisation because, you know, you, you know, the UK will have its own culture. How do you align that with what's happening elsewhere across the global Know, business? So it's a great question. I, 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 let, let me come back to the UK culture and just make a point about the, the global business. I, in, you, one of our biggest competitive advantages and actually the great strength of all truly global international businesses like us is being able to benefit from cult, the culture but also the approaches, the skills, the know-how of different places around the world. That's what mm -hmm. progress is. Progress is about learning from other people and learning how other people do things and then importing it into your business to become better yourself. And so you know, we have a, a business throughout Latin America, in the US, throughout Europe, uh, particularly in Spain. And so our great competitive advantage in the UK is being able to access the skills, the talent, the know-how 
from all those markets and, and bring them to the UK, just as uh, I believe the global business is stronger by having the UK as a core part of it. Uh, many of our best people work in different places uh, around, the, around the group. And of course, uh, the UK generally has exported many things around the world, not least our regulatory frameworks. And so a lot of the learning that we have in terms of how to successfully operate in our framework here is, is very valuable learning around the rest, of the, the rest of the world. Now, as it relates to the UK and our culture at the UK, we've touched on, on some of it. We believe very passionately in our purpose and our role is to serve our customers and to serve them more broadly than in the narrow financial services sense. And uh, this is led from the board and we do everything we can to push this down throughout the organization because in reality, the people who interact with our customers are uh, our colleagues day to day in our 500 branches around the, around the UK. These are branches that stayed open all through COVID. Uh, the doors were open, they were welcoming customers in. And these people are truly passionate about serving customers and being able to help customers broadly meet their. And I've been to many branches and I've seen what our colleagues are doing all the time to help our customers, help vulnerable customers, help customers who wouldn't otherwise have access to financial expertise and advice. Even it's down to you know, helping customers with technology and, and so on. So it's, it, you know, like all companies, it's important to us, but we really like to think we, we turn this into practice at Santander. As, as, Anna, as a UK business, how do you nurture that culture? You talked about taking the best of what happens elsewhere. Is there anything that you're doing that really nurtures that? Because we do see it. We see it in the way that Santander shows up in the market. What are you doing that's really nurturing it? Well, again, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think it, it really comes down to the level of interest of the senior people in the organization and the board in our people at all levels. A lot of organizations talk about the perma-layer or the permafrost layer in the organization. And so you have the senior management and the board, and then you've got you know, the, 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 the people who really are delivering the firm, whether it's Santander or other firms, day-to-day -day with customers. And then there's this sort of kind of middle layer. And we like to think that we, we, we don't have that middle layer. We have a great deal of accessibility going both ways uh, in the organization. And you know necessarily, you know, board members don't spend all their days in branches, but we do all spend time in branches. We all visit branches. Uh, we have colleagues from across the business coming to the Exco. They come to the board. We do workshops. We have um, broad sessions with different. We have networks. Uh, and it's worth spending a second on that. We have eight different networks in our organization which represent all sorts of different interests, whether it be retired military personnel, a whole range of different diversity networks. And we, and we think these are really, really important as part of fostering that culture and making it accessible to everyone. And that's something that I'm personally interested in, which is why I wanted to ask you the question, because culture has to come from the top. And it's something that we've definitely been focusing on very, very, you know, very much over the last 18 months or so. Um, you've touched on the role of boards. And I think um, from what I've seen in my experience and from talking to our peers, the role of boards has changed. And I think you've just given one clear example of how culture as something that's living, breathing throughout the organisation, whilst you're not out on the front interacting with customers, you are really driving that. How do you think the role of boards has really changed in your, I mean, in your career as well? So yeah, it, it's changed enormously, as you know, as you know, Bina. I'd, I'd pick up two things really to highlight. One is um, board accountability. I, I, I think 
you know, the level of accountability which board members now feel for the business is is much greater. That's not to say they didn't feel accountability before, but I think you know, the um, expectation that board members have of themselves in terms of the understanding of the business, the level of detail that they need to go into, and the level of accountability that they need to take ultimately for core aspects of the business, not obviously for running the business day to day, but for yeah, but for the culture, uh, for the the ethics, um, for the sort of the safety in terms of the way they run it, for for the risk management. These are things which board members feel accountable for. And certainly I think in the UK, board members of big companies, you know, would all stand up and say, I am accountable, whereas perhaps they wouldn't have done twenty or thirty years ago. Uh, the other aspect I pick, I think we've touched on really, which is the is is the is the diversity um, of both of the boards in themselves, but also the way in which they are bringing about a much more diverse culture and a culture which is focused on all stakeholders. Um, you know, of course, ultimately, we're delivering value for shareholders and and so on. As you talked about earlier on, you only have a successful business if you're evolving the business. Uh, at the same time as as driving as driving profit, and so I think boards are much more focused on all stakeholders, whether it be our employees from a cultural perspective, whether it be our customers, whether it be the purpose that we have as a business, and the boards really drive that. And I think that's a big change from twenty or thirty years ago. Oh, I think so too. I think the other big change from twenty thirty years ago in your sector is the emergence of fintechs. Yes. So I'd like to turn a little bit, if it's okay, to technology. So certainly in the last decade. Um, we've seen emergence of fintechs, and I'd like to get your perspective of how you feel that's changing your business or your outlook for your business. So, look, I mean, you know, my colleagues on the Santander board would say I was quite evangelical on this on this topic. I, I believe we're on the verge of a revolution, um, and of course, we've been through a big set of technology changes over the last twenty years. But I believe on the verge of a much bigger and more transformational set of changes. Uh, and that is to do with individuals and businesses' relationship with money and transactions. We're going to live in a world within five years where every single thing we do is instantaneous and electronic and will ex involve the exchange of ownership, whether it's a, a security, whether it's a bond, whether it's a share, whether it's a painting, whether it's a house, whether it's a car, will involve an instantaneous exchange of ownership which will be recorded by electronic means and will be exchanged for, for, for money ele electronically, instantaneously. We still, notwithstanding, we all go into shops with our telephone and buy things and it seems instantaneous. There's still actually a, a, a one, two, three day settlement period depending on um, what it is that's being bought. Uh, and there's an extensive settlement period if you're talking about stocks and shares and bonds and so on. And there's a lot of paper and bits of uh, get shuffled around which prove ownership. And the blockchain technology, which you'll know very well, uh, we're not there yet, but the blockchain technology will allow instantaneous exchange of ownership, which will be a digitally recorded, with exchange of money, which will be digitally recorded. And of course, that will involve digital currencies. And uh, the UK is uh, going to be at the forefront of uh, thinking through digital currency, I believe. Uh, and certainly, the city minister uh, has talked to me and talked more publicly about the UK being in that area. And, and what that means is that you know, we'll have um, two wallets in our bank. We'll have a digital wallet, which will have digital currency, and we'll all own digital pounds, and that means have, they'll have a long number after them. 
and one will have fungible pounds, which are the ones we have today. And that will allow us to instantaneously exchange those digital pounds for other goods that we want to buy. And banks are going to be absolutely at the center of this ecosystem because banks are going to be the intermediaries which are going to facilitate the exchange between fungible currency and digital currency and they're going to facilitate the transactions which allow you then to buy things and your proof of ownership will be registered electronically. And that's just the beginning. Um, I just want to build on the technology piece because I know it's something that not only am I passionate, you're very passionate about and you sit on the board of a company called Salonis. Um, Fast-growing technology business. In fact, the largest... VC deal in Europe last year. So it's growing fast and it's doing really, really well. Um, we've talked about this before, you know, what's the role of technology? So I was wondering if you would share a little bit more about Salonis, but, but more importantly, how its technology plays a part in delivering sustainable growth. So it's, uh, Salonis is actually a great example of the power of good of, of technology. Um, so what Salonis does is uh, it's all about process efficiency. So you know, all businesses, large and small, and obviously particularly large ones, have become reliant on very complex processes to run their operations, whether they're a retailer and they're selling goods, they've got to um, buy you know, large inventories of very large numbers of goods, whether they're banks with processing you know, very large volumes of transactions, uh, whether they're industrial companies running processes. And these processes all run on computers, software of different forms. And what Salonis does is it connects to existing business processes and it diagnoses where the inefficiencies are. And one of the very common challenges I hear talking to CEOs is frustration with not understanding their own process. They say, well, it's so complex, our process, and it's so costly. And what Salonis does is using technology and actually using AI and machine learning through teaching itself the processes which are involved in individual businesses, um, it diagnoses where the inefficiencies are and then reports on how those inefficiencies can be improved or removed. I'll give you an example, a business buying five product, buying a single product but from five different suppliers mm -hmm. at five different prices with five different order, lead order delivery times, Salonius will instantaneously or very quickly diagnose that and deliver a report and allow that to be to be fixed. And ultimately, it's therefore a cost reduction tool. So it's about efficiency, uh, simplification and cost reduction for big businesses. But I think the efficiency simplification piece is absolutely part of the heart of what delivers productivity and therefore sustainable growth, right? Because we know technology is going to play a very big part of our businesses. You've just articulated it in terms of fintech and what that might mean for Santander. So it's quite interesting using the Salonis example when you talk about efficiency, it's productivity, and therefore creates a sustainable growth that allows you and frees up resources to be invested. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's the, it's the sort of the ability to invest and look at the entire sort of flow through because if you invest you can do more for your customers more to your suppliers so I think it's an incredible it's an incredible well, story. And we have yeah we in the UK that th th there has been a productivity gap with many of our G7 peers for a number of years and yeah there are numerous reasons for this but one of them is actually under investment in productivity growth and technology uh, and indeed in equipment and machinery which can can help productivity in the UK and I think uh, businesses like Salonis, software like Salonis, and obviously there are others as well, yeah. are going to help to close that gap. And you earlier on in our conversation did highlight the 
the attractiveness of the UK, the innovation that we have, the great tech businesses that we have, the talent um, and education system, all of those things are actually very connected, right? Because some of these tech, a lot of these tech businesses come out of the academic institutions. How would you like to see the UK evolve and, and maintain its reputation as a, as a real creator of these disruptors? So again, we are excellent as a country at innovating and business incubation. And, and I touched on it earlier on, whether it's, it's life sciences, whether it's technology, you know, we're the leader, for example, in battery technology worldwide, just in the, the actual science of creating a battery. And so there are so many areas. We have three of the world's top 10 universities and so on. But in so many areas, um, we incubate these businesses. But as you know, we haven't proved as successful in turning these businesses into world-leading businesses. And we look with envy across the pond at our American friends and see how successful they've been. And so what do we need to be able to incubate those businesses into more successful and larger businesses? I'd say it's two things. We've got to continue in this country to open our arms wide to the most talented people around the world to come and help build these businesses. We don't have a monopoly on intellectual content here in the UK. And we've thrived as a country for so many years by being such an open economy and open to talent uh, and individuals and people from all over the world. You have to look at our society to see how that has been true for 50 years. We, we have to fight against our urges to shut our borders to people like this and be open to them coming in and help them come in so they can help to develop these businesses, uh, firstly. Uh, secondly, we need to create a predictable playing field into which investment. It's about investment at the end of the day. We've got to create a predictable playing field. And we've just had a lot of unpredictability for the last five years. And so it's been challenging to make. When you look at the number of listings in London um, and what percentage share globally London's had of listings over the last five years relative to the US or other places in the world, and it's fallen very significantly. I mean, I know this looking at the, I'm on the board of the London Stock Exchange Group and looking at the, um, the listings on the, on the LSE. And so we, we have to create a more predictable playing field for investment to, 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 to come in. And then finally, it's an intangible. I don't know what the answer to this is, but I, I do think we need to create more ambition here in, in, in the UK. Um, you know, entrepreneurs in the UK and very successful business people in the UK, um, if you just look at the past, have, have declared victory at a certain point. When they've a business got to a certain size, they've been happy to sell it, they've been happy to do their IPO, they've been happy to go and do something else. And I just observe by contrast in the US that when an entrepreneur builds a business, it becomes a 10 million business, they want to make it into a 100 million business. Well, how they want to make it into a billion business? When they're a billion business, they want to make it into a 10 billion business. So there's, a, there is a, there's more of a moonshot mentality I think sometimes in the US about building a business than there is here and uh, it would be good if that changed as well. I wonder if it's a cultural thing that we're just a little bit more conservative. Um, I'd like to tell a little bit about you now if that's okay. So if you could go back in time and uh, speak to your younger William, what advice would you give yourself? Well there's a question. <laughs> um, I'd say don't be in such a rush actually. You, 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 in many ways you think time is short every day, but actually you do have more time than you think. And always be mindful that you can only accomplish anything with the team and people mm -hmm. around you. And building great teams of people 
with very broad bandwidths of talent, you can't have everybody all the same, is the, the key to success for anybody. That's lovely. Lovely. And I can see I can see how that probably manifests in your day to day work with Santander as well and the way that you work with your colleagues there. Um, one final question. We've talked a lot about sustainable growth and, you know, what will sustain the economy what's, you know, and, and business and communities. How do you sustain yourself? Well, um, I've got a wonderful family and wife and children. And so that's absolutely core to me, actually, both you know, in, in my working day, in fact, and then uh, more broadly. And I've also got a, a, a slight tendency for um, thrill seeking in all sorts of different sports <laughs> I do. So I think some would call them extreme sports. Um, others would call them sports. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of kite surfing. I do a lot of um, ski touring and ski tour races. Uh, in the mountains. In the That's winter, extreme so. sport to me. So I like to I like to keep myself fit. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Look, I, I just want to sum up today. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I think we've taken away quite a lot from you, actually, in terms of how you empower. So your purpose is allowing you to empower, whether it's your colleagues, your customers, your communities. You talked about accountability and responsibility. And I think as boards, we all feel that it's, it's just much more magnified at this point in time because the expectations of ourselves, but also the expectations of the broader stakeholder group, it can sometimes be competing. So navigating that is quite challenging. And I think you're absolutely right. The power of good in technology and what, what, what it has, the ability it has to drive sustainable growth. That brings me right back to the lovely phrase that you use, we're on the verge of a revolution. And I look forward to that with great optimism based on what you've just told me. Thank you. Great, thanks Pina, very much indeed. Thanks for joining me today on Pull Up A Chair, whether you're at home, at work, or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and thinkers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet and profit. Goodbye.